This is episode 15 of Untangled Faith. Are you going to welcome me to my podcast? Uh, Yes, welcome to your podcast. Thank you. I feel welcomed. It's the place for you. (laughs) It, It literally is. I would want the superpower of not caring if people loved me or not. It doesn't sound like a superpower, right? No, I don't think that there's okay. a single Marvel hero that has the superpower <sighs> of not caring. Nathan, how do you like having me work on a podcast behind you while you are working on your work? You're you're the best Zoom backdrop I've had ever. <laughs> This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Hey there, it's the last episode of season two, and to celebrate... I'm answering questions from listeners. I invited my husband, Nathan, back to the podcast, so I didn't have to talk to myself the entire time, and you all asked some great questions. We tackle everything from the lighthearted questions to some serious ones that I had a lot of trouble finding an answer to. I'm so glad to share this time with you. Here is my Q&A time with my very favorite husband, Nathan. All right. Do you have any questions for me? I guess I should say. I do have some questions for you. These are not my questions, however. Okay. If you have questions for me, you may also ask me questions. That's a very good question. Do I have questions for you? So the first question is, are there any known online communities for recovery from spiritual abuse? I do not know of any. I had not known of any personally. So I I crowdsourced that on Twitter. And I'm still getting some answers. And I'm going to add a little bit of that probably at the end of this, of our recording as I'm editing it. But just preliminarily, somebody mentioned Katie Rogers. She was interviewed on Julie Roy's podcast, The Roy's Report, that she, that Katie is working on putting together something. I don't think it's out yet. Julie Roy's is also putting together a conference for people that have experienced spiritual abuse that is not an online community, but she is going to be putting information out about that for a gathering in the Chicago area. And I believe that's in spring, in the spring of next year. That's not online. It's actually like an in-person thing. Informally, There is this thing online called Weird Christian Twitter. And there are a lot of people there that have experienced spiritual abuse that have sort of become their own little support group, ask and answer questions of each other, share stories. Um, Some people have websites where they share blog posts that they have shared or podcasts or interviews. And I would highly recommend joining Twitter and you can follow me. And you can tag me and say, hey, who should I follow? And I will be glad to tag a million people for you to follow. The other thing I would do is find like the authors that I've listed in some of the books in the spiritual recovery, spiritual abuse recovery starter pack. Um, All those authors have great things to say. I would follow them and see who they interact with. And then you will find a great community of people. It's just one you have to build yourself. You kind of have to build your own online community. Yes. Can you define spiritual abuse? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, talking a lot about spiritual abuse, it seems like it should be easy to define it, but sometimes my brain goes blank. So I looked up like a definition of spiritual abuse. And again, I am not an expert. I would prefer to just point you to experts on these things. And that's why I have interviewed different pastors and pointed you to different authors and people that have studied this extensively. But spiritual abuse usually happens when there is some sort of a power differential and the person with more power is using their position or power. And it has to do with a faith community or your faith Bible verses and they, or a word from the Lord. And they will use that to either coerce you to do something that isn't necessarily biblical and it harms you in some way. It also could be any person that has a position of authority in a faith community that harms somebody physically or spiritually. That would be physical abuse and or sexual abuse, but it also is spiritual abuse when this is somebody that has a position of authority in a church. An example of spiritual abuse would be a pastor that meets with somebody and says, you know, we have this ministry that's happening and, you know, we really need you to be here for all of these ministries. If you, you know, want to show that you're actually a faithful follower of Jesus, there's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to show up to all the church ministries to show that you are a faithful follower of Jesus. Usually there's extra biblical information that they're trying to, that they're using and interpreting in a way that isn't necessarily consistent with scripture. And there is this common theme that it is harmful to the person. So there's a difference between spiritual abuse and having your feelings hurt. So you have a conversation with a pastor or a Bible study leader or a ministry leader, and they disagree with you on politics. That's not spiritual abuse. A difference of opinion, that's not spiritual abuse, unless there's shaming involved. What would be another example, would you say? No, I mean, it's definitely where that line has been crossed over using that that difference in power to be able to kind of control that person or make that person feel a certain way in order to, to get behavior out of them. Like in your former employment experience at Ramsey, I would say an example of spiritual abuse would be framing any and all pushback as a spiritual attack on the organization in a way to confuse. Instead of saying, is this true? Is there something we should do about it? Using like spiritual language to demonize anybody that disagrees with you. That's that's spiritual abuse. Saying that a disagreement or pushback is anti-gospel, anti-Jesus. There was a team meeting that was there once where Dave represented the opposing side, people that disagreed with him as a bunch of liberal, atheist, socialists. Um, it was like, if you disagree with me, you must be a liberal you must be against Jesus. That wasn't what it was about at all. Mm -hmm. It was like a reframing of the entire thing. You're like, no, we weren't talking about that. We were wondering why you had a gun that you pulled out in a staff meeting. That's like a reasonable question. And to have his response be, you know what? Anybody that has questions like that is a liberal, an atheist. They don't love Jesus. And they're just out to get in the way of us trying to save people. So yeah, I wouldn't say everybody... I think it could be easy for somebody to say my feelings are hurt. This is spiritual abuse. 
I haven't seen a lot of it, but I can see if you are in a ministry leadership position, how you could be afraid of that or nervous about people talking about spiritual abuse because you're afraid you will be accused of it in some way. I think that goes with the territory of being a leader of anything. When that happens, again, I'm not, I'm not a expert on this. I think you approach that conversation with that person in a humble way and ask for clarification on why they would think it was that. And you do some real serious, always being open, open to the possibility that you could be wrong. Mm -hmm. If you come to any conversation with somebody that's bringing some sort of hurt with an open heart and an open hand that says, it's possible that I have missed something and I have a blind spot. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. You don't have to necessarily agree with that person. But I think if you start with that sort of a response, you're going to get a much, the odds of having a good outcome are much higher than just disregarding out of hand. Did you have any, was there anything else about that one that you wanted me to answer? Mm-hmm. A sort of a follow-up question to that one. Uh, someone also asked a question about what you mean when you say power imbalances or some of these other terms that have come up, uh, like feeling marginalized or power structure, or even the evangelical industrial complex. They're feeling like there's a whole language here that they weren't familiar with. <laughs> yeah, there are. There's a lot of terms. As far as power structure, or um, power imbalance, was that the first question? Power yeah. imbalances. A power imbalance just refers to like the difference in position that people have that gives one person more power in a relationship than another. In an employer-employee relationship, there is a power imbalance, or the employer would have more power because they have the ability, they have control over what happens with that person's employment. In a church environment, a ministry leader has more power and, and influence than just somebody that's showing up for the Bible study. A pastor would have more power than the weekly Sunday attender in the in the pew. Um, now there's nuance to all of that. If that person showing up in the pew is a huge giver and uses that as a way to influence something, that that also impacts the power. Everybody has some sort of power. Diane Langberg talks about that. She says even little babies by crying, they can have a great amount of power over people, causing them to act. Power imbalance itself isn't bad. It's neutral. It, and it, it just exists everywhere in a ministry environment, in your faith community. I think you need to be aware of the power imbalance because it can lead to it being harder to have a safe place for people to bring up things that are actually problems if they are the less powerful person in the relationship. So you should do whatever you can to address the power imbalances so that it's a safe community for people. If they, you know, how can we make it so it's easy for someone to talk to somebody if they have a concern? How can we make it so that they can easily find contact information for people without having to ask people that they wouldn't want to know? Like I was talking with somebody at our church this week saying, hey, we don't have the elder contact information on our website. And he's like, oh, we had read on the website some things that happened with people getting spam email and they had forgotten to add the elder contact back in there. And so we tested it, got it up and running. They just didn't know it was there. So having an easy way to access people is one way to address a power imbalance. Power structure is just a hierarchy. And that again, it's neutral. It's like how your org chart is working. Like who is in charge of who? Like who's the boss? Who's the subordinate? Who do people report to? That's a power structure. And again, it's neither, it's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It just is something to be aware of. 
I mean, there was, the larger question here was whether there was uh, some additional reading or whether there was some sort of there. where can you go to learn more about these terms? Specifically, the other two terms that were that were called out here were marginalization, like being marginalized. And the evangelical industrial complex. Marginalized is a word I hear often used in by like professional counselors. And so I would say if you read anything by Diane Langberg, Dr. Langberg is a, she has decades of experience in trauma counseling. They probably have some good explanations of that. I don't, I can't think of one place it's from. But people that work in the mental health field would be able to define it better than I can. And, and generally, it's people that have very little power. It also can be whatever situation you're in, like a, a minority group in that community, a, a minority group within a, a bigger community. Um, and marginalized can you can often mean pushed off to the margins. Or kind I was of just going to ask. If it disregarded. It it's easy to disregard. Did you ever see Minority Report? <laughs> Kind of like get rid of that diverting opinion without truly like holding it, looking at it for what it is. And the evangelical industrial complex, I mentioned it last week with my conversation with Sheila Gregoire. That is a term that was coined. Most people believe it was coined by Sky Chitani and he used it sort of like the, so sort of a twist on the military industrial complex and that the military industrial complex was all of these things that businesses and corporations that built up around to support military actions, places that benefit financially from military, that people refer to that as the military industrial complex. And I think a president that referred to it at that time, that he was kind of concerned about that happening as a way that keep wars going and conflict happening because there was like some sort of economic benefit to places. And so Sky Jatani, he suggested that we have an evangelical industrial complex. And that is like a business that has sprung up of speakers, conferences, publishing houses, and all of these people and all of these, this industry makes money off of each other and promoting each other. It could cause a risk to that if one of their speakers, authors, leaders is shown to be not ethical or not, uh, or disqualified, pastors are disqualified, because it's going to cost them money, cost them influence. So it's very hard to get people inside that evangelical industrial complex to hold each other accountable, because these are all their business connections. They're, they're friends. <laughs> it's how they're going to get, it's how they're going to sell their books. It's how they're going to promote their books. It's how they're going to get, it's how they're going to make their living. It's a whole thing that supports itself. And it would really want to keep protecting itself from any, any danger, which makes it hard to have accountability in there. And I think that is one thing that Sky had pointed out. I have another one here. Someone was asking whether you have any interview questions or uh, a screening process uh, that they could recommend as people are checking out new churches. How do I know when I walk into a church, especially if I've had a painful experience at a previous one, how do I avoid that the next time? And I wish I remember the exact time that Rachel Den Hollander shared this, but there was one time she addressed that. And she said that one thing she would ask leadership at a new church was how they had messed up in the past and how they had and how they handled it. I thought that was a fantastic question. Ryan Ramsey sent me a link to, to something that he wrote a while ago about choosing a church. And he talked about how most of us spent a lot of time thinking about alignment with 
theology. We align with that denomination and their beliefs. And I mean, that is very important, but equally important is the culture of the church. So, and the culture will trump good theology because in the end, it's not really great theology if the culture is as unhealthy. So I'm going to share some of the things from he wrote in July of, was this July of last year, maybe? I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's called On Looking for a Church and or Ministry. And he said to think about this when you're considering a new church, a faith-based job, or a job in the church. He says, um, time is on your side. So don't don't rush it. Take your time. He says one of the hardest tensions to navigate may be between your excitement for something new that aligns well and the patient, tedious effort required to discern the culture of a prospective workplace or church. It's always better to delay that gratification of landing somewhere. We so long to be just settled in a new place, and that can work against us when we're trying to take time to discern if it's a healthy place. He also says, be willing to investigate. I think this one scares me the most. Be willing to set up a time with leaders and ask them some hard questions. And these are some questions he suggests. Ask them about turnover among staff and non-staff leadership and the general membership of the church recent history said last five to 10 years and listen to how they respond to that. And he says a place with integrity would be glad to answer this and they won't have anything to hide. And hopefully this would answer another one of those, that question of like, what have we done wrong at some point? How they refer to people that have left, the way they talk about them is going to tell you a lot about the character of the church. Ryan Ramsey also says, listen to your body. You may just feel off about a place. Don't disregard that. You know, there are red flags possibly that your subconscious maybe is seeing and you haven't completely processed what they are, but pay attention to that. He also says, look for a place that assigns virtue to loyalty. And we have seen that play out horribly. Loyalty isn't a fruit of the spirit. And so if there is a huge emphasis on loyalty, I would say that's a red flag. You're you're not going to want to look for a place that's all about loyalty. And he also says to engage your story, be aware of the fact that you might be super sensitive to some things. Engage with that. Ask yourself, is this my past hurt putting up barriers or is this hesitation? I feel something that is really real here in the church that I need to work that I need to work through. I'm not saying gaslight yourself until you don't trust yourself. What I'm saying is as you're taking time, I think you'll be able to discern the difference between I feel triggered by a certain song and a certain name or, you know, certain memories, the difference between that and this new place that you're visiting. So I think those things from Ryan Ramsey are brilliant. I probably the answer to all the questions should just be go talk to Ryan Ramsey. He is one of our favorite Ramseys, right, Nathan? Yes. Nathan's over here laughing at me. One of the things that I want to do in this podcast is point you to people that have more expertise than I have. I have personal experience of my own. I have opinions and thoughts. I don't know that I have a lot of expertise. So I love to point people to pastors, chaplains, people that have been through a lot, processed it, took some time to really think through it, and counselors. Like when we talked to Wade Mullen, he has a PhD, he studied all of this stuff. There's so many great resources out there. So that's why 
as much as it would be easier for me to just sit here and talk by myself on this podcast and I wouldn't have to edit other people's stuff and I wouldn't have to do interviews with them. I don't think it would be as valuable. So as I'm doing this, like ask me anything. I feel like it's sort of a cop out for me to be like, you need to talk to Dr. Langberg. You need to talk to Dr. Mullen. You need to uh, listen to Ryan Ramsey, listen to these other voices. But I feel really good about doing that because you don't want just my random opinion about things. It's not going to be super helpful. I did a little more crowdsourcing online. And here are some questions that people suggested or, or things that people suggested looking into when you're considering a new church. Ask them if they have had people sign NDAs, non-disclosure, non-disparagement agreements, staff members, or anybody in the church. I would ask them that. Somebody suggested that. That's great. Is there any history of prior abuse cover-ups? Have they rehired leaders from other places that have had credible accusations of abuse? Have they hired them from other places and not been transparent about that person's past? Also, somebody mentioned a history of financial abuse. I'm not exactly sure if that would be like suing people frivolously or not paying well or holding finances over somebody as a way to control them. Those would for sure be red flags. I think the way that they answer some of those questions could be a red flag, but they could also answer them in such a way that isn't a red flag, but isn't also... Yeah, that's a good point. It's not. But there's certain certain ways mm -hmm. that someone could answer a question like that that would tell you for sure, okay, I don't want to be here. Yeah. So it might not be the answers, but how they answer them, how they act toward you for asking those questions. Is there a real sense of defensiveness? That's a red flag. Do you feel like even though they say that they're an open book, that you feel like you are a problem for them by asking these questions? So how did you decide to do a podcast? I thought about it for a long time. It looked like it would be an interesting thing to do. And my friends, I talked to my friends about it and they said, do it. And then I procrastinated, finally just decided on a date. And I told people I was going to do it. And then I, I had to, otherwise I'd make myself into a liar or somebody that doesn't follow through. And I needed to be a person that follows through. I'm not great at it. I think I knew that's why I knew I had to say I'm launching it on this date. Do you look at uh, the podcast as a ministry? I, yeah, I do. I definitely see it as a ministry. I don't think I would do the hard work if it was just a way to entertain myself and to create something. So, which I love creating it. I like most of the pieces of putting it together, producing it. I really enjoy, but it takes a lot of time and I'm not great at it. If I didn't have in mind a greater reason than just create something, I don't think I would do it. I definitely want to help people. I want to encourage them. I want them to know they're not alone and I want to help them find community. I guess that's a ministry. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Okay. I would. How did you select your theme song? <laughs> okay. The person that asked that question is Melissa Hogan. And I think it was her and some other friends I said I needed a theme song. I was having a hard time coming up with one and they picked this one out. And maybe was it Melissa and or Lauren or Lydia? They said it sounded sort of Sherlocky, like the show Sherlock, and they liked it. And it seemed to fit what they thought of me. And so I liked it too. And that's why I picked it. Well, that explains the smiley that accompanied the question. Okay. <laughs> yes. 
The winky face? The winky face. That's what it is. Uh, has doing the podcast, the interviews, all the editing been more therapeutic or more heartrending than you expected? It hasn't been heartrending. It's been really fascinating for me. I would say therapeutic. Um, the stories that I've listened to all have a theme of hope in them. I feel hopeful and I feel less alone. Maybe it's sort of a and in some ways, I'm doing this for my own personal benefit. I'm sort of working through my own things as I'm asking these questions of people that I consider to be experts or people who have gone through things. I feel less alone. I feel like I'm learning new things. And I'm feeling like I'm feeling hope for the future of the church because these these are people that love Jesus. They haven't given up on him. And they're finding a way to really see the difference between what is real. And like I say in my intro, what is good and true. And what isn't some of the things that we lift up as like really important aren't some of it is just like structures and cultural things that we have tied around faith that aren't important in the end. So what would you say to someone who's in the midst of an abusive spiritually or otherwise situation or who just came out of one who's afraid to speak about it to anyone or, or, or much less publicly? I would say welcome. <laughs> I would say you are not alone and it makes sense that you would feel reticent about speaking. I think the first thing I would do is to find other people that have spoken up about things and reach out to them. They are going to be safe for you just to share your story with somebody. It helps lighten the load. It takes away that feeling of isolation that often comes with hurt that happens in a faith community. So I would start with finding someone that is already telling their story and they're easy to find online um, and send them a note. Often they have an easy way to reach out to them. Have you had any personal breakthroughs by doing your podcast? Things that you didn't see before, but you do now after having discussions with these guests? I have learned things for sure. One is really humbling is that, first of all, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm sort of learning as I go. And one of the things that happened with that is I hurt somebody. I really hurt somebody during one of the first, during the first season when somebody was sharing their story, part of their story interacted with somebody else. And by not taking that information out when I edited it, that third party that hadn't asked to be on the podcast or mentioned, even though their name wasn't mentioned, there was enough identifying information that people knew who it was. And it put them in a really difficult situation. And I should have known better. And I regret that great, greatly. They ended up reaching out to me a few weeks ago, actually, and just telling me, you know, that it was really, really painful for them. And I know it took a lot of guts for them to reach out, not knowing how I would respond. And I'm really grateful that they did. It was good and really so painful to hear from the person directly impacted, just to remind me that I need to be careful with these stories because I want to help people. I certainly don't want to hurt people. Uh, you open your podcast by saying, if you want to hold on to your faith, uh, what would you say to someone who's only had toxic experiences with faith communities and isn't sure that they really want to hold on to that? That is a hard question. I would go to a licensed counselor and I would I would say that I think that's one really good option because they will not have any, they have no skin in the game. They, they want you to be healthy. I'd probably spend time reading the gospels, finding some really safe people to just be super honest with, and that would be willing to maybe walk through that with you and that don't have any expectation on you at all, other than to have your best interest at heart. That's a really hard question. I do not like that question. 
That's like a whole podcast. I should probably have somebody on that could help do, we could do a whole podcast on that. Mm-hmm. What I read in the Bible and what I see of Jesus is that he's not afraid. He's not afraid you're messing it up by being confused and seeking clarity and healing should lead you closer to the truth of who he is and not farther away. If you could go back in time and talk to early days, Amy, you know, seven, eight years ago, <laughs> uh, back before you were fully bought into an environment you later recognized as being spiritually abusive, what would you say to yourself? And do you think that you'd listen? I think I would say, hold on to your integrity. Look for people that are being consistent in their words and their deeds. And don't be distracted by flashy things that have nothing to do with anything. So especially if you're going into an environment that is faith-based, but you're super excited about it for a lot of other reasons too, like a paycheck or like the opportunity to have a fantastic Christmas party, to not let those good things blind you to things that aren't. I would say listen to the dissenting voices. Don't disregard people that have walked away from the place that you're walking into or that you just walked into as the bad people. Be willing to engage with their stories. I think it's also important to recognize that even though there might have been some bad, like it it changed over time. At that point that we're going back and asking ourselves that right. question, I'm not sure that the same that, that the situation would have been 100% the same. Some things were only going to ever happen in 2019. Yeah, things changed. And we and wouldn't so, have known that in 2011. Yeah. And it's not so much that we wouldn't have recognized it. I'm not sure that it was as prominent or, or just, Yeah, like the red flags were you know? Yeah. I, I know this answer. Okay. Uh, team cat or team dog? I love animals, but I'm going to have to tell you, I love dogs more than cats. We have two dogs. That also, we... I'm allergic somewhat to cats. <laughs> oh, so and I'd have to choose. Of... I'd have to choose between my husband You'd, and a cat. I'd be, I'd be sneezing. We love time. our dogs. We have a puggle named Max and a cavalier dachshund mix named Samantha Carter. Who is far more psychotic than her size would indicate. I, I think there is a there is an inverse proportional relationship between animal size and how psychotic they are. Our hamster is perfectly reasonable. I've seen a pattern played out across all of time and space. There's an inverse proportional relationship between how neurotic a dog is and their size. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Who is your favorite <laughs> superhero? Oh my goodness, a superpower. My, I would want the superpower of not caring if people loved me or not, because I'm an Enneagram too. It doesn't sound like a superpower, right? No, I don't think that there's okay. a single Marvel hero that has the superpower <sighs> of not caring. Well, I would say Iron Man. <laughs> Although he wants to be admired, doesn't he? Yeah, I don't think that's a super. What is he? Is he a three? Someone needs to weigh in on what Enneagram number. You're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that. You can't Enneagram other people. If he were to self-identify. <laughs> but he's not a person. It's a character. Sorry. Sorry, Lydia. We know we're breaking all the Enneagram rules. Okay, superpower would be to be in more than one place at one time. Is that a real superpower? Yeah. And my favorite superhero, I really love the Marvel movies, but do I have a favorite superhero? I do know I would want Emily Blunt to play me in a movie. I don't think I have a favorite superhero. I'm going to have to think about that and come back to it while I'm editing. So you've said that Ryan is your favorite Ramsey. Uh, So which of your children is your favorite? No. (laughs) My favorite child. I love them all the same. And which is your favorite husband? Well, you are. Okay. 
You're also my least favorite husband. <laughs> I deserved that. <laughs> you're you're like all the places. I um, did not see it coming. We did it. We finished two seasons of the Untangled Faith podcast, and now I'm taking a break. I need to plan out the rest of this year and part of next year, 2022. I'll be back at the end of September, but in the meantime, if you want to support this podcast, there are two things you can do that will make a huge difference. First, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and second, share this with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as Untangled Faith. I am Faith Untangled on Twitter. For show notes and links to all the things I talked about in the show, check out untangledfaithpodcast.com.